I mean, I, I guess I've been working on and around Africa for a long time. And what I've really noticed is really obvious is the extent to which development models and electrification models, which have been left behind as a result of colonial occupation, haven't achieved the results that are needed for a lot of the community. Power generation, start the conversation. Energy efficiency and conservation. Out from the gutter, lift the nation. Get out and get it, the information. Energy sovereignty. Sustainability. And resilience. Are central components to global climate action. The protection of Mother Earth. And the safeguarding of generations to come. Anche Kia, Frédéric Campbell, Dissunika Sean, Kutne Ototan. Hello, everyone. My name is Freddie Upe Campbell. I am currently in um, my my home city in the Kootenays in Kimberley, British Columbia. Super grateful to be here with you all today and really grateful to be joined um, by my wonderful co-host, Ms. Gekwin James Harper, and our great guests. So I'll, I'll pass it over to James to introduce himself. Thank you, Freddie. Thanks, Tanse, everyone. Tanse Kakeo. My name is Muskokwin James Harper, originally from Surgeon Lake Cree Nation, Treaty 8 Territory. I am joining you from the fabulous and wonderful Opaskwea Cree Nation in Northern Manitoba, Treaty 5 Territory. And here I am, excited yet again to be hosting another wonderful episode of Decolonizing Power with our exceptional guests. Welcome, welcome. Please, to get us started, can you introduce yourselves? Sure. So my name is Lyava Indrunaite. Um, I am originally from Lithuania. Um, I'm a policy and partnerships manager at Camco Clean Energy, and I'm joined by my colleague Jess today, who will, I'll, I'll leave him to introduce himself. Um, I myself am currently based in our East Africa office in, in Nairobi. In terms of my background, I've been working for, uh, I think, around a decade now in focus on various public policy and public sector management um, issues. For, for the past few years, specifically in the renewable energy space. Um, at CAMCO, I lead uh, policy, regulatory, and political risk assessments, um, government engagement. Um, I work on some market strategies, um, as well as technical assistance and, and advocacy interventions with a view of strengthening what we call the enabling environment for renewable energy in, in the developing and emerging markets where CAMCO operates. And hey, my name's uh, Jeff. Um, I'm CAMCO's managing director normally based in London, although I'm, a, I'm Australian originally. I've been working on uh, climate and uh, renewables for, well, an embarrassingly long time, uh, mainly in Africa. I, um, I've been at Camco for about five years, and before that, uh, I was at uh, Standard Bank, which is a South African bank. It's not Standard Chartered. And I started and was running their carbon finance business uh, for a long time. And it's nice to be with you. Thank you both so much for giving us a little introduction of yourselves there. We are really excited to have you here and to hear a little bit more about CAMCO. Uh, for our listeners, CAMCO is a specialist climate impact fund managing group. Uh, they work with a lot of different folks to support um, community visions for clean energy transitions and different energy markets globally. They've actually supported over 200 projects in 29 different countries. And we asked them on the podcast today because as we explore the different areas of decolonization and energy, financing is a big one. 
And CAMCO has a very unique approach to distributing funding for communities and working with communities. And we're really looking forward to hearing more about how they do it. So uh, Jeff and Eva, would you mind uh, explaining a little bit more about the organization and your roles within it? Sure. So CAMCO has been around for a bit over 30 years. It was formed in the late 1980s in Nairobi. It's uh, a climate and impact focused fund manager working in emerging markets. Um, And uh, the whole team is very much about the impact that we have. Uh, And so we like to work with people who, uh, like us, seek the prospect of a brighter future um, leading to clean energy transition in emerging markets. Um, our main focus is on impact, as I said. Um, so uh, what does that mean? Access to energy, uh, particularly clean energy, uh, and prevention of an adaptation to climate change. We're a fund manager and we're trying to, to pour money into, uh, into these areas. And we need to be able to pour money into these areas to be able to have the impact that we want to have. And so to attract that money, we seek to make acceptable investor returns. Um, across the company's history, we've um, provided around 15 and a half million people with new and improved uh, power connections uh, through our committed portfolio. We've mobilized about $3.7 billion uh, of funding from third parties, again, into energy access and climate. Um, in terms of renewable energy capacity, um, our portfolio over the time has been around 1.6 gigawatts. Yeah, perhaps I can just add that. Um, so, of course, we come from, from the private sector, and, and that's very much CAMCO's focus. It, it remains our focus today to, to bring this you know, funding where it's missing, ideally you know, increasingly more local um, companies in, in these markets. Um, but while we, while we come and while we sort of try to support the, the private uh, sector space, we have to acknowledge the important role that the governments play as well, and, and this is, you know, this is why my uh, position, which might might seem quite unusual, in fact, for a fund manager to have sort of a policy or regulatory lead. Um, uh, so it's it's really of uh, trying through our work to to bridge a little bit the the private public sector gap, which unfortunately often often remains a gap. And you know, I think if we talk about um, the current uh, challenges related to to climate change, whether we think about mitigation or adaptation, it's really clear that there needs to be a stronger partnership between public and private sector. A little bit of, of our work is, is trying to bridge that gap, even by just speaking to governments and, and sort of helping them realize the role of the private sector in helping them to implement the, the nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement and, and other policy priorities. So we, we always want to show them that, um, you know, through our work, uh, we're actually helping them to implement those goals and, and to lead their countries in the direction that, that they set out to, to do. When I hear that, I think of one of the SDGs, the Partnerships for the Goals, uh, SDG 17. And it's better when we're doing all this amazing work together and building these strong partnerships and having collaboration just makes a difference in terms of using the strongest assets that each and every one of us has. And because this work is so complicated, sometimes there's many challenges. And excuse me for being a bit personal here, but some of this work becomes difficult. So I have to remind myself when we're all working together of what I bring to the table and what my motivation is and where I'm coming from uh, and the impact of this work that will ultimately have on our future generations. 
And so one thing I want to ask you both, because of how hard this work can be, uh, what's your motivation? What keeps you going in this line of work? Uh, or what prompted you to enter this amazing organization and have this have this career in this field? You know, it's it's the working in the climate space. So we work in the climate finance space, but I obviously also come from from a background in policy, and all of this is so interrelated now. It's unfortunately, on on the one hand, it's the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges we have in in today's world, and on the other hand, it is it is an opportunity. You know, so for me, it is um, uh, it is actually quite an exciting space to to work in, and it's it's exciting because it's a combination of um. Of a few things, it's a combination of impact. You know, we cut across several SDGs, and, and of course, the, the Paris Agreement goals. But in SDGs, it's SDG seven, SDG thirteen, and, and the one I think it's seventeen that you mentioned about the partnerships to begin with as, as sort of the primary focus. But you know, of course, there's a lot of our work cuts across much broader impact areas. It's uh, it's related to gender and equity. It's related to job creation. Um, it's related to developing sustainable industries. It's a challenge that needs solutions, and and that means that we constantly need to innovate, and and we constantly need to think how ourselves, but also through these partnerships, you know, we can come up with solutions that uh, did not necessarily exist before. And in our space, it's mostly about you know how do we attract climate funding to areas like like the small island developing states, you know, for example, or some of the uh, markets in in Africa that uh, that did not see private sector investments in renewable energy before, or especially in, in the energy um, access space, so in, in the hardest to reach communities. So these are the sort of challenges we have to think through and, and work together with the team and with our partners. And, and that's, um, that's, that's really what I find quite exciting, as well as, of course, working in this work with so many different people and people coming from very different backgrounds and just being kind of open to, to all of these dimensions and, and points of view and bringing them together to, you know, to really look for how to design solutions that also work within the local context, which which is where we are based and, and what we're trying to target. And I guess for me, there are really two main things that, that, that get me up in the morning with this job. One is trying to address the climate change challenge and trying to address it in an intelligent way that makes people's lives better. Climate change is obviously a huge threat to everyone. Um, but it's also an opportunity uh, to do things better. And I think the second thing is, I mean, I, I guess I've been working on and around Africa for a long time. And what I've really noticed is really obvious is the extent to which development models and electrification models, which have been left behind as a result of colonial occupation, haven't achieved the results that are needed for a lot of the community. Uh, and so figuring out that challenge, figuring out what does work uh, and getting it to happen, it's hard work. Um, you know, I could have a much easier life trading bonds or something like that, but um, it's both incredibly interesting uh, and also when you get it right, it's, uh, it's very satisfying having that impact. I, I think most of our team has that kind of perspective on what they're doing. It's it's a baked in culture in the company. Yeah, that's so fantastic. I really liked how you framed uh, that energy and the clean energy transition is an opportunity to do things differently, but as long as that's done in the right way. And obviously we we can relate a lot to that on this podcast as we talk a lot about decolonizing the energy systems, deconstructing different pieces of it to make more of an impact for communities. 
I would really be curious in hearing more about that topic and how each of you see CAMCO as a organization that does do things differently and how that has made an impact both for you and for the communities that you work with. If I go back to the that sort of colonial set of models that have been left behind uh, in the areas we work in, I mean, honestly, they've just kind of failed. And there's a lot of institutional inertia around those models. So, you know, big projects, big deals, everything has to be standard, lots of lawyers in the room, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But if we're going to address the actual challenges, then we have to think differently. We have to be able to move quickly. We have to be able to think creatively uh, about risk and structure and apply different business models and different technologies like mini grids and solar home systems and isolated grids and, you know, all sorts of things that, you know, your typical investment banker who doesn't want to get out of bed for anything less than $100 million really can't be bothered with or just doesn't understand. Um, and so I think where we really tend to try and focus is on being creative and taking on a challenge to make, you know, electrification or climate projects work. You know, that that's sort of, if you like, um, embodied in uh, our main fund, which is called REP, Renewable Energy Performance Platform. Uh, and that focuses on small renewable energy projects on grid and off grid. Um, and the off grid is mini grids and solar home systems. Uh, and uh, there, the approach is to really have a very, very flexible financing toolkit. So we can do anything from equity to senior debt. We've done trade finance. Just about the only thing we don't do is grants. And, and so we look at, is this project or is this developer, is that, are they doing something that is fundamentally worthwhile and can be commercially successful? Uh, and then we sort of figure out what we have to do to get it to happen. That takes, um, you know, a bit more of a risk appetite, uh, but an intelligent risk appetite. So we sort of try and structure that risk properly uh, and then talk to the market about the risk and educate the market about the risk so that they'll start to take it as well. Uh, and so that takes a lot of commitment to the markets you're in. Uh, you know, we've had offices spread around Africa for the better part of 30 years, and that's a big commitment, but, um, but it's necessary. With all our investees, we work with them in quite intense way to help them to understand and improve their gender and diversity outcomes. And we do that through, if you like, our investment focus. So we select developers, projects, transactions uh, that have um, a really good set of gender diversity outcomes. Uh, and then we sort of actively monitor and engage and improve with the companies as they as they go along to understand where they can improve? It is really both, I think. So, of course, we have the operations manuals, we have sort of policies and systems. But at the same time, I quite like that you, you sort of highlighted that it's part of the company's culture as well. Because I think, you know, you that, that is what real adaptability, where, where it really comes from, right? Because, you know, we could have these policies and they would not evolve for 10 years and that would not be probably the right way forward. So it's important that we have people in the company that constantly look for these opportunities for improvement. And it is, I think it is very, like the adaptability element is very important for us and, and the flexibility related to that as well. We are able to really listen to sort of the investee, that's the potential investee that comes to us and be able to design the solution that, that uh, works for them. Sometimes we have to wait for them to become ready for, the, for that investment. 
sometimes, I mean, there've been there've been times where we probably changed our approach as to <laughs> as to what type of funding we provide to them and when and how. Uh, you know, probably three times completely sort of um, turned it around. I think, I mean, even us, we were no different to others. We will probably also come into some walls when it comes to um, getting funding for these facilities because there might be strings attached that come from the so-called, you know, the development sort of uh, the funder world. Um, but I think our job as the fund manager is really to make sure that the funding that comes in and the requirements that come in from, from those so-called donors or um, de development assistance partners um, and the investors as well, that we sort of help them to understand how to maintain the standards, but also make them workable in the environments that we work in. And so how to sort of sometimes we have to fight a little for that flexibility because because we feel that that's needed and, and that's our job. Right. And, you know, it's so interesting to hear that because the one of the common themes we've been hearing on this entire podcast is the access to funding uh, access to financing for projects in many cases, especially for remote communities in what is known as Canada, at least. A lot of communities don't necessarily have the right resources to make a typical large bank's requirements and prerequisites to fund their projects, despite the projects actually having great financial performance throughout its lifetime. So I think what we're leaning towards here is figuring out what innovative climate financing looks like, conscious of these realities. Uh, so perhaps if you could please give us an example, uh, how have you seen this being done, essentially? Maybe a success story, if you will, if you could share one with us, please. For me, probably the the, the most sort of personal one is the Sierra Leone story. Uh, so Sierra Leone is a country that I have focused on um, for quite a lot of, um, quite a few years in my career, even before I came to Camco more from the policy perspective. Um, and uh, of course, it's a country that has a very um, difficult history, uh, first with the civil war that was not, um, you know, that ended not so long ago. And then after that, uh, the country unfortunately fell into the, you know, only just over a decade after that, they fell into the Ebola crisis. So it was a government led uh, program which primarily focused on electrifying health clinics. So it started off with a sort of um, standalone installations that were then extended to electrify also the um, uh, surrounding communities and started off as a more kind of um, public sector uh, driven project with the development partner support. Um, and then uh, what the government wanted to do is to extend um, this kind of approach uh, to electrify more communities through mini grids. Um, and so they, they designed a tender, uh, a concession um, program where they sought um, three private sector companies to come in and help them both to manage the existing mini grids. So under the first um, work package of that program, and then also to develop, I think, some 54 maybe new mini grids. So altogether, it's now um, over 90, and it's considered to be quite a success story um, in the region. Um, and it, it was a combination of a very, I would say, multi-dimensional partnership. So, you know, of course, it was a sort of the idea that came from the government, the policy steer, and and then development partners lied behind that. Um, and that is, for me, first of all, it's it's quite dear because it's it's really a public-private um, partnership and and one that has you know, delivered on, on the goals um, that uh, that everyone wanted to achieve. But what we are really seeing through those mini grids is that, of course, they came, you know, to support communities that were very heavily affected by a number of challenges over the years. And mini grids are able to deliver more than just electricity access. They're able to enable what we call productive uses, so economic activities um, in those areas. And, and that's what we're seeing those companies now, you know, doing quite well. Um, in, in Energy City's case, 
you know, they are particularly working on, on supporting these communities and rolling out the economic activities, whether it's through supplying them with, um, you know, the equipment that's needed to use that electricity, the newly gained um, access, or, or to train them to open up their, you know, ideas of what, what could be done. Um, and doing that in a very local way, I think, and, and sort of in line with, with the needs of the communities and, and sort of really with the local embedded approach. So, of course, we are sort of, as a financier, we're always one step back. Um, you know, we are not those that are going out into those communities. It's the investees that, that do that. But we are working together with them to ensure that, um, you know, it's the, the right approach that is being taken in those projects. And I think the impact of these mini-grids projects in, in Sierra Leone and um, the approach that they were developed in and, and the environment that, um, uh, where they're operating, it's, um, I think it's, it's highly impactful. And for me, it's, it's quite a, an interesting case study and, and a story. Yeah, I mean that's it's a really good example. Um and I, I mean maybe I'd pick up on the, the productive use or economic development angle, which is a project in Tanzania called the Mwenga project. It's in the Mufindi uh district in uh, in Tanzania, which is quite agricultural. There's a lot of tea uh plantation activity and stuff like that. Uh and it's Tanzan Tanzania's first ever wind farm. So it's it's not a very big wind farm, it's Three turbines, um, 2.4 megawatts. But those three wind fire, wind turbines fit into uh, quite a what we call a hybrid grid, uh, and so they uh, they go alongside um, an existing hydro project that was already there. They offset seasonality uh, from a from a hydro point of view, and they supply a reliable uh, stream of power to um, local agri-processing activities, so there are industrial off-takers. There is a, a, effectively a mini-grid uh, connecting communities around the project, and so there's around 5,000 electricity connections across 32 villages. Uh, and then um, it's also connected to the uh, Tanzanian national grid and injects power into the grid to support what is a relatively uh, isolated area of the grid which needs some some frequency support um, and so you know some of these users you know really need the power uh, but it's also opening up opportunities for um, creation of new industries um, around tea processing sawmills uh, there's a rapidly growing uh, SME or sm uh, small medium-sized enterprise sector um, and that's all being um, facilitated, I guess, by the availability of electricity, which probably wouldn't be the case uh, if they were just on the grid power. The Tanzanian grid is uh, famously or infamously uh, unreliable uh, and in intermittent. Uh, and so obviously from a creation of economic activity, you need a reliable sort of supply of power. And that's what this gives the uh, one more example that's quite uh, exciting from from different perspectives, you know, it kind of maybe shows that element that we try to to highlight, which is that we come in when others are not ready, perhaps to do, or at least sort of, you know, beyond the grant funding. It's a company called Mobile Power. Um, so we we supported them with us with an investment in their Series um, A. So it's a relatively early investment, even for Rep. Uh, but I think we really found in them something that seemed um, innovative, but also extremely tailored, at least from our point of view, to, to the needs of the community and, um, and the way that, uh, you know, they would like the energy to be supplied to them. So what the company does, it's, it's a solar charged battery rental, which is a very new model um, in the market. 
but it was it was quite transformational in a sense that um you know we were probably by then quite familiar with the solar home system sector um as sort of leading the the off grid um, space um but what uh, what this company is doing you know effectively it's a, it's a rental service so it's it's renewable energy based um battery rentals but it's able to supply this power to the end user to the customer in increments that the person is able to afford given perhaps you know specific needs that they have that day or that week for them to make the commitment to to buy let's say a solar home system is not always the the best solution um or is something that uh, that might be seen as as quite you know frightening or a big commitment and so the fact that this company was able to sort of meet them sort of midway effectively and and kind of tailor their their business model to the income seasonality to the you know to the needs every day and and on a short, sort of short term basis um i think the fact that they designed their solution really by sort of listening to the customers is what i found particularly attractive and and they are quite successful in expanding into you know new new countries and new areas and that's a really great example of using a technology to address a market need in communities which have very low incomes quite often i mean that the market that they they address is uh, communities that don't necessarily have the money to get a a small solar panel uh but then um the company itself is now starting to pilot uh, and develop businesses around using that technology to address other needs so they're doing uh swappable batteries for electric motorbikes uh, and electric tuk-tuks and um you know a whole range of other things and even there in the electric mobility space that they are now entering the mentality remains the same it's how to make their product affordable and and you know to meet the needs of the of the client because you know they they can just swap the batteries and rent them on a on a day-to-day basis yeah and it has a huge impact great to hear that venturing into new spaces especially the mobility space has been more of a trickier one and i'm speaking on the work that we do here across the pond as well and so speaking in the spirit of looking ahead wanted to know what's next for cameco uh or what are the bigger challenges that you see that still need to be addressed by your organization or by climate finance in general sort of as the next frontier that we need to be working on um yeah what's what's next on the horizon and, and in terms of what ne- what's next i mean i guess we're really um working with local developers um to get them to build up balance sheets to the point where they can be taken seriously by banks and and focusing on you know small small to medium sized business needs which is really where the bulk of the market is and the need is in Africa uh and then we're doing um another facility to get pacific islands off diesel onto renewables and there's a climate imperative to that but there's also an economic one diesel by the time it gets to some of these islands is you know 6 or 7 dollars a liter uh or um 20 dollars a gallon i guess uh and for example the solomon islands has the most ele- expensive electricity prices in the world uh and so there's a real economic benefit to getting these uh countries off diesel onto renewables uh and the facility that we're we're working on uh will address the whole renewable energy spectrum it'll be um grid uh, connected power um commercial and industrial needs um because these these uh, countries need uh commercial and industrial development uh and then also there are a lot of islands in the pacific islands uh and so the set, the, the the main islands typically have quite 
high connections to electricity. Um, but the outlying islands, where there is a significant level of population, you know, they're reliant on tiny little diesel gen sets half the time, which cost them a fortune. Uh, and so part of the design of the fund is to uh, to be able to get mini grids, renewable energy mini grids into those communities and to make them, you know, economically sustainable. At the same time, uh, there's a huge local capacity challenge uh, in the region. Uh, and so we'll have a big capacity building uh, facility alongside of technical assistance, development funding, and also uh, a form of uh, results-based subsidy for the mini-grids. I really appreciate you folks sharing what's up and coming. It's super exciting. And again, we really appreciate you taking the time with us today. I just wanted to open up the space if you had anything else each of you would like to add. I mean, the only thing I'd say, the energy challenge and the climate challenge are really huge. Uh, and so it takes everyone to to affect change and to get the outcomes that we want. You know, it needs if everyone to kind of roll their sleeves up and, and do their part. And so, um, you know, we... we actively look to work with communities and various types of stakeholders, financiers, developers, and working together on this challenge works so much better than than not working together. And so, you know, I guess uh, it's kind of like a call, call to action. Let's get on with it. Yeah, you, you stole my point. <laughs> I think, I mean, in my role, it's, you know, partnerships and breaking down the silos of, of the different sectors. It's it's really so much of my everyday work, and so I guess it's it's a call to action, but also sort of a, a support if you know if many of your listeners are actually working in a similar space, and whether it's academics or or government representatives or or the private developers, if they sometimes feel that they can they can't actually break through those silos, it's to kind of encourage them to to go on because I think that uh, you know I also feel quite um, disappointed or you know. Just to, I just feel that it's a huge challenge to break through those uh, silos a lot of the time and, and to facilitate that conversation, even within the company. So for them to understand the different perspectives of, uh, you know, governments and uh, and the civil society, um, which I think is also important because a lot of my colleagues come more from the finance side and the banking world, and that's quite different to where I come from. Um, but uh, but yeah, then yeah, then then you know, sharing our view with uh, with the governments and and with the developers and. Uh, and uh, and everyone out there um, and trying to come to a common understanding because we do really have to work together to achieve the the goals that we all aim to achieve within the climate um, space and, and the climate challenge that we face. Sounds like a lot of unlearning, relearning, and taking action, which is what we're all about. So again, really, really appreciate you both taking the time with us today. I know you're in another country and really busy with all of the work that you're doing. So we just want to thank you for coordinating with us. Um, and yeah, I'll let James finish on a few points, but want to just say merci and thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think both of you summed it up very nicely on how climate finance is a key piece to enabling meaningful climate action. And it's very important work that we all do here. And uh, so I'm grateful for the time you spent with us today sharing what you're doing and all the work that is in front of you. All I can say is keep doing it. You know, there's so many roles you can have in, in this climate action space, so many different possibilities, so many different roles that you can take. 
So I think the more folks joining in the movement and finding their respective roles, the closer we get towards achieving an equitable, sustainable future for all. So Aeva, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing with us your stories. So grateful for your time with us. All right, that concludes the fourth episode of this season of Decolonizing Power. Marci, for everyone, uh, for sharing your time and space with us today. And Marci Miskakwin for all of your beautiful words of wisdom. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, thank you so much, Freddie. Really, really appreciate it. As always, yet another exciting and informative episode on Decolonizing Power. Be sure to follow us and all the work we do at Indigenous Clean Energy on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you. Hi, hi.